Connection Church's podcast. Today, guest speaker Milan Turner continues the series entitled The Greatest. In this message, Milan talks about the church that God can use. He encourages us to get passionate about our faith and use every opportunity we have to spread the gospel and win souls for Christ. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. All right, got an early service here. Everybody got to wake up with me. want to tell you this morning how uh, honored and privileged I am uh, to be here with you this morning and to share God's Word. Before I get started, uh, as you saw, I'm headed up to Thompson, Georgia. I've actually already started. I started work there this past Wednesday, and my family and I will be moving up next Saturday. But I want to just share with you guys briefly, just tell you uh, what Connection Church has meant to me and to my family. First of all, uh, what an incredible privilege we have to have such an awesome worship team. Amen? Amen? Isn't that great? I can't tell you how many Sundays. We've been here two years. It's hard to believe it's been two years, but I can't tell you how many Sundays that I and my family have come in and just the busyness of the world and things going on and, and come in here and worship and be led in worship like we are. And it, just, it, just, it just warms your heart. It lifts your spirits. It just gets you so excited about, about the Lord. And, and then the, you know, the Word being preached and the fellowship Connection Church has been huge. When my wife and I came here, we were actually in the process of, of healing a marriage and healing a family. And in two years, it's absolutely amazing what God has done in our marriage and in our family and our life. It's just incredible. And uh, I just want to share that with you. And thank you for, to, to the praise team. Thank you to Brandon, the staff, and, and to you, the body of Christ, uh, the church here at Connection Church. What an incredible, incredible time it has been. We're going to miss you. One of the tough parts for us, or the toughest part for us, is, is actually leaving here and having to go find another church because now everything is going to be compared to you, to our family here. And, and I just don't know if we'll ever match that. That's what Chad Wiggins told me. You can't, you can't beat this. So, um, so we just, we're, we're going to be looking for second best, right, brother? If you would, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're, we're doing this theme called The Greatest, and... If I could kind of just kind of go out on a limb this morning, I'm going to tell you that, that this morning I want to talk to you about the greatest example of a church that God can use. Now, I want to pre-emphasize that with this, folks. When we talk about the church, I want you to understand that we are the church. As individuals, you are the church. You're the body of Christ. And then collectively, corporately, we are the church. So, as I speak to you this morning and, and share with you from God's Word, I want you to be able to think in and out of both of those realms. I want you to think about you personally as the church, and then I want you to think of all of us collectively as the church, a church that God can use. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Read with me. It says, Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, 
that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you, uh, Father, for your presence this morning. I pray, Father, that you would speak through me, speak to me, and speak to your church through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Apostle Paul had a profound influence everywhere that he went. It didn't matter whether he was sitting in a jail cell speaking with the jailer or with another prisoner. It didn't matter if he was in front of uh, royalty like King Agrippa. It didn't matter if he was walking the streets uh, of a a foreign town. Everywhere that Paul went, he never left that place the same as it was when he first got there. I like to think of Paul as someone, uh, a breath of fresh air. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever had someone come into your life? Maybe it was a a relative or it was a friend, but there was somebody, whenever they came around, you always felt like they were a breath of fresh fresh air. Anybody know someone like that? No? Two of you? Okay. All right. Okay, maybe we all should be a breath of fresh air. Amen? I think Paul was that. Paul was a breath of fresh air. Whenever Paul came into town, he just had such an anointing. The power of the Holy Ghost was so strong on his life. He had such a love for people. And such a love for Jesus that when he came into the presence of other folks, you just were not going to be the same. He was a breath of fresh air. He was an encouragement. He challenged you and encouraged you in the Lord. You couldn't be around Paul long without sensing the presence or hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was such an excitement generated in and through Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe one of the greatest, if not the greatest church in the Bible is this church at Thessalonica. It was a church of incredible birth. And I want to show you that. Turn real quick to Acts chapter 17. Flip over to Acts chapter 17. And I want you to look with me in verses 1 through 4. Acts 17 verses 1 through 4. And we're also going to look at verse 10. This is where Paul goes to Thessalonica and plants this church. Listen to it. It says, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, so for three weeks, Paul's ministry there was for three weeks, It says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. What was he doing? He was preaching what? The gospel. Amen? He's preaching the gospel. And it says, it says, uh, preaching to them that uh, Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And listen to this. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So some Jews came to Christ, most of them didn't, and a multitude, a great multitude of Gentiles, the Greeks, came to know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So listen, Paul comes to Thessalonica. He's preaching the gospel. Theologian scholars say thousands were coming to Christ. Listen to me now. How long was he there? Three weeks. In just three weeks, thousands were coming to Christ and being saved. Thousands were being... That should get a loud amen. Amen? Thousands are coming to Christ. Paul's preaching the gospel. He's pouring it out. And in three weeks, thousands come to Christ. They don't like it. The Jews come against him and they threaten to kill him. 
So by night, he has to leave. Now you say, well, what's, what's so neat about that? Well, listen, the work of God was so incredible. Liberal theologians say, well, the Bible's wrong. There's no way that Paul could have done this in three weeks. There's no way that all of these folks could have come to Christ, that this much ministry could have happened, that this place could have been so transformed in such a short period of time. Can I tell you something this morning? Can I tell you that God can do more with your life in one minute than you could do in a lifetime with it? Amen? I don't have a problem believing that in three weeks Paul did exactly what the Word of God said. I don't have a problem with that because I know how awesome that God is. This morning, I want us to examine what God did at this church. And I want us to examine what it means to be a church that God can use. I want you to watch this video real quick and we'll continue. Remember, remember Carlos, mother, and remember the chaplain, Dr. Coach Nick Hyder down at Valdosta High School. Coach, that was 1994 state championship. Two years later, Coach Hyder would die of a massive heart attack in the lunchroom at Valdosta High School. The reason I show you that is because Coach Nick Hyder was, he's one of my heroes in coaching. I'll tell you why, because my philosophy of life and, and what I do as a professional is exactly what his was, and that is this. Football is a platform to preach the gospel. Uh, Coach Hyder was all about ministering to kids, loving kids, sharing the love of Christ with them. Uh, he didn't care what, the, what they said about having the Bible in school, just like I don't. Uh, we do a verse of the day every day with every weight training class. We pray with our kids in the public school. I'm going to share the word. I'm going to pray with them, and I'm going to minister the gospel every day. And you know what I know? I know this. I know that if they fire me, it wasn't them that hired me anyway. It was God, and God will find another place for me to go and preach the gospel. Amen? 
And so that's what Coach Hyder, that's what Coach Nick Hyder was all about. Coach Nick Hyder was a breath of fresh air. It didn't matter where you saw him, whether he was speaking at a clinic or, 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 or on the practice field or on Friday night in pregame. He was teaching those kids about Christ. He was always going to honor God with everything that they did. And I share that with you to say that, you know, whether you're a football coach or no matter what you do, isn't that what we're supposed to be? You know, aren't we supposed to be the the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ? Uh, God wants to use us, you know. And and I would challenge you in this as we study his word this morning. You know, if you're not being used of God, I think we really need to examine where we are. Do we really know him? Because if you know God and you love God, the Bible says you'll keep his commandments if you love him. The Bible says it will be about his work. And so I want us to look at that this morning, and, and I really challenge each of you in that. The first thing I want to talk to you is we talk about a church that God can use. The first thing I think we see in 2 Thessalonians is this, the church's faith. Look with me in verse 3. Verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says this, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. First of all, let me say this about Paul. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, the very beginning, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. You know, I believe that Paul had developed such a relationship with these people. I believe as he I don't believe Paul just prayed for the church in general. I really believe that in the context of the scripture we can we can deduct that Paul prayed for these folks individually. I believe that when Paul left, I believe he remembered people. I believe Paul prayed something like, Lord, thank you for Bob and what you did in his life, and thank you for Susan and what you did in her life and how you changed that family. I just know that that's how Paul prayed for these folks. He had built such a relationship. He was, he was their, their, their pastor, their, 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 their father in Christ as a church. And so he goes on to say this, Because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Now, the first thing that we see is this. The church's faith. The church's faith. What was their faith? What did they have faith in? Well, the first thing that we had faith in was Jesus Christ. If you turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, just flip the page. I want to, see, I want to show you what happened in terms of their salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is good. It says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, You welcomed it not as the word of men. See, that was important. In other words, they weren't just listening to another speech. They weren't just listening to a man tell a story. He said, you heard the word not as the word of men, but what? As it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul says, hey, I came and preached the gospel. You listened and you heard what I had to say, not just as the words of man, But you heard it as the word in truth. You heard it. It touched your heart. You believed on it. You asked Christ into your life, and you had salvation. So the first thing that had to be established at Thessalonica was a faith in Jesus Christ. They placed their faith in Jesus and received him as their Lord and Savior. The second thing that we see there is their faith in the word. It says they received the word of God as truth. It's, it's now how they're living their life. The Word is what they lived their life by. 
In other words, folks, we don't live our life by uh, CNN or Fox. We don't live our life by Oprah. We don't live our life by Women's Day or whatever the case may be. You don't live your life by what the person next to you at work tells you life is supposed to be. Amen? You live life by the Word of God. It's His blueprint for life. Everything you and I need to live the Christian life is right here in this Word. Amen? Marriage, it's right here. Raising children, it's right here. How to be a godly friend, it's right here. How to share the gospel, it's right here. How to mend a broken relationship, it's right here. How to love others unconditionally, it's right here. How to handle your finances, it's right here. Amen? Y'all looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Everybody okay? All right. They live by his word. They believed it as truth. Here's what's so great. If you go back over there to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the verse we just read, if you'll throw it back up on the screen, it said that the word worked effectively in them. It says you welcomed it. And look at the very bottom, which also effectively. When you go back and take that word in context, what that means is that the word continuously, through the power of God, continuously worked in their lives. In other words, the word changed them. Day by day, as they studied the Word, as they prayed together, as they learned the Word of God, that Word of God was living seed, and it changed them. They didn't just hear the Word one day, and that was good for the rest of their life. They were daily being transformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Amen? So they were being transformed. The Word was working effectively. Every day as they poured the Word into their hearts, it was changing them and transforming them and making them more like Jesus Christ. You see, when you get saved, it's just the beginning of the lifelong journey with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So they put their faith in Christ. They had faith in his word. And then the next thing is this. They had faith in the Holy Spirit. Their faith, along with the power of of the Holy Spirit, produced works. In other words, they believed that regardless of the fact, hear this, church, regardless of the fact that they faced injury or death every day as they lived as Christians and proclaimed the gospel, it was the power of the Holy Spirit and their faith in the power of the Holy Spirit that generated the excitement and the drive to go out into a world that may kill them, and preach the gospel. Now, what's amazing about that is we live in a society where we don't face that. Folks, if you leave this church today and you go out in this community and preach the gospel, I'd say it's highly unlikely anybody's going to kill you. They may say no. They may yell at you or use profanity or whatever. That may be the extreme. But there's no one in here going to go out into this community and be killed or injured for preaching the gospel. But in this place, every day there was the threat. Have any of you ever read the book Radical? Have you, anybody read that book? It's an incredible book. If you haven't, you ought to read it. Amazing what you see what the majority of the church around the world goes through. When you see that people have to ride bicycles for hundreds of miles to go to a place by the dark of night and slip into a home so that no one sees them, they can't carry their Bible because if they get caught with one, they'll get killed. So you know what they do? They memorize it from front to back. Did you hear that? They memorize it from front to back. Memorize Scripture. Then they go into these homes at the dark of night and they kneel on their knees with other people and they pray and pray for one another. And you know what their prayer requests look like? Their prayer requests sound something like this. Lord, please protect our people in our church because they're having their tongues cut off. Protect the people in our church because their families are being ripped away from them because they're Christian. Please protect the people in our church because they're having their heads chopped off in public squares. That's their prayers. 
You know, and, and, and that really convicts me. You know, it convicts you about, Lord, bless this food to my body. In Jesus' name, amen, as we sit down and eat a Wendy's cheeseburger. You know, compare the prayer. Think about it. You know, and, 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 and it really opens your eyes, you know, to, to, to what we have and what we're so blessed with and yet so complacent. And these people will go outside of these homes and they'll share the gospel knowing that they can have their tongues cut out and their heads cut off and their families taken away. That's radical. And this is what's going on here at this church at Thessalonica. They had put their faith in Christ, they believed the Word, and they had faith in the Holy Spirit. And they were excited. You see, here's the thing you have to realize. It was the power of God that changed their lives. Amen? Let me tell you something, folks. Listen, I don't give up alcohol and then come to God. I don't give up drugs and then come to God. I don't... Uh, give up promiscuous living and then come to God. I don't give up pornography and then come to God. No, you come to God and God takes all those things away. Amen? It's the power of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes lives. It's the power of God. You come to God with all your mess, as dirty as you may be, you lay it at His feet through the power of His Holy Spirit. He's the one that will take that away and fill you with His power, with His love, and set you free. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has set you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Amen? He's come to set you free. It's the power of God that changes lives. You don't change. You know why? You can't change. If somebody ever tells you you can change, you say, No, I can't, because you can't change. But God can change you. You can't change. I couldn't change. If I could, I would have a long time ago. But God can change you. God can change me. It's his power. The church was excited. What were they excited about? Number one, they were excited about their own personal relationship with Jesus. Do you ever get excited? Do you ever have times during the day or during the week where you just really think about how awesome it is, what God has done? The fact that the Bible says that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Does it not blow you away to think that that Jesus went to the cross and died 2,000 years ago knowing just how dirty and filthy a person I was going to be? Amen? That ought to get a 1,000 amens. Huh? He did. He loves us. They were excited about their relationship. Do you ever get excited about thinking, you know what? The Bible says life is like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Does it ever excite you to know that when you get through with this short life that you'll spend all of eternity in a place where the Word says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them who love Him? Amen. Do you get excited about Ephesians 3.20, which says He'll do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can think or ask? Amen? Or do you get excited when the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Amen? Y'all don't get excited? Y'all don't get excited, huh? Okay. All right. I'm going to do my best to get you excited. I'll do my best. You know why? What is the importance? Listen to me, church. What's the importance of 212 degrees when it comes to water? What happens to water at 212 degrees? Hey, listen to me. Hey. We got to go 212, baby. You got to get 212 degrees bowling hot for Jesus Christ. Amen? Hey, if you're 211, you're just warm water. You're just warm. We got to get hot. Amen? Hey, you got to get bowling hot for Jesus. Because we got work to do. Amen? Yeah. You got to get hot. Get excited. You're filled with the Holy Ghost if you know Jesus. We got to be 212, baby. 212 bowling hot every day, all day, for Jesus Christ. Be a Jesus freak, amen? Be a Jesus freak. Yes, sir. I'm a football coach. I'm sorry. I get a little excited. 
Write it on your, hey, get you some eye black and put 212 on there. Walk around and people ask you, say, I'm bowling hot for Jesus, baby. Let's go. Hey, we got to get excited. Amen. Hey, God is alive. Okay. He died and he went in a grave, but three days later he did arise and he does sit at the right hand of the father and he loves you and me more than we can ever imagine. Amen. They were excited about their personal relationship with Jesus. What else were they excited about? New believers coming into the body. They were thrilled. When I was here, came here two years ago, we sat over there somewhere. None of this was here. I don't even know what was probably about, what, 50 people at that time or 60 maybe. And I think, what, a week or two ago, we were right at 500. That's incredible. Amen. Hey, listen to me. Hey, it's a God thing. That's a God thing. And that's what, I'm, that's what I live for is God things. In my football program, in God's football program, I'm about God things. The wins and championships, I've been blessed. I've been fortunate to experience all that kind of stuff. You know what? That's, that is such an aside. It's the God stuff that I love. It's taking kids to FCA team camp every summer and watching 20, 30, 40 teenage boys raise their hands to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When I go to team camp and I see kids get saved, you know what I realize right away before I coach my first football game of the season? Season's a success. If we lose every football game, heaven forbid, but if we lose every, <laughs> if we lose every football game, not only will I be looking for a job, but the season is still a success. Amen? And it is. I mean that with all my heart. They were excited about new believers. And here's the next thing they were excited about. They had a passion for the lost. I'll never forget, I've got so many examples I could share with you that just bless my heart. One particular, I've got a defensive lineman, and he wouldn't mind me sharing his name. J.C. Lanier plays at Georgia Tech, redshirt freshman, about 6'5", 320 pounds. He's a giant of a fella. But uh, we were in the weight room, public school, ECI, and I all, like I said, every day I share a verse of the day and pray, and every Friday I do a full devotion with the kids in school, in, in a public school. And I love that. I, just, I love it because people say, well, they took prayer out of school. No, they didn't. They took the Bible out of schools. No, they didn't. Not where I'm at, they didn't. So I love that. I just get a big kick out of it. And I've gotten several letters from some people around, you know, what are all those little civil liberties and stuff like that. But I think that's cool too. But anyway, we're sitting in the weight room after we did a devotion. And, and J.C. came to me. This has been years ago. He said, Coach, he said, I don't know Jesus like you do. But he said, I want to. I said, oh, that's easy. I blew my whistle. Second man, we walked out the door of the weight room. I put my hands on him. I said, let's pray and receive Christ right now. And he prayed right there, right outside the weight room and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then he went back in and benched like 500 pounds. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> so it was good. But that's the kind of stuff I get excited about. I love that. I love that. And I get excited about reaching the lost. Here's the second thing we see. Look in verse 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Or the bottom of verse 3, I'm sorry. Bottom of verse 3. He said, your faith grows exceedingly. So we talked about the church's faith. Here was the next thing that we saw in this great example of a church. It says, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. The love of you all abounds toward each other. First of all, we see the church's love for Christ. Look in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11. Let's look at the love for Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The Bible says this, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is of who? Of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love who? One another. So, first of all, they had a love for Christ. Listen, they worshipped and served him with the daily threat of injury and even death. They were radically in love with Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see, keep your place right there in 1 John chapter 4. The next thing we see is this. They had a love for the brethren. A love for the brethren. 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, it says there that their love abound one for the other. If you look in 1 John 4.20, look what it says. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is what? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So they had a love for Christ, they had a love for one another, and then a love for the lost. Listen, I want to ask you this question. What have you and I sacrificed in the way of reaching someone for Jesus? For God so loved the world that it's in his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should what? Not perish. That word perish means apoluma, to perish from the inside out. But what? But have everlasting life. You know, you could put my name or your name. For God so loved Milan. For God so loved Chad. For God so loved Nancy. That what? That he sent Jesus. You know what that means? That scripture means that if it was just you, you remove everyone else from this room, everyone else from the entire universe but you. God so loved you that he sent Jesus. Amen? And so God wants you and I to have that kind of love for the lost, to so love them that we would be, he was willing to sacrifice Christ. What are you and I willing to sacrifice to reach the lost? Are we willing to give of our time and our resources? Are we willing to take a moment just to share and brag on Jesus and talk about what he's done in my life and in yours? So the church is love. Look with me now in verse 4. We've talked about the church's faith. We've talked about the church's love. Now I want to look at the church's patience. Verse 4. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you can endure. If you go back over, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. If you go back over to 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the fact that he went all over. When he left Thessalonica, he went to northern and southern Achaia. He went over into the Europe over into Europe and, and, and into that area. And you know what he said? He said that your testimony as a church, Thessalonica, was so strong that when I got there and tried to tell them about you, guess what? They had already heard about you. Amen? They had already heard about you. They had heard about your patience through trial and tribulation. There was a testimony that was so strong that when Paul got there, they'd already heard about it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to see somebody or visit someone and you got there and there was something you wanted to tell them? You were like ready to tell them. And then when you told them, they said, I already heard that. Have you ever had that happen? Kind of busted your bubble. You know, you thought you had some great news. You were all excited. And they go, well, I've already heard that. Well, that's what was happening. Paul, before he could even get to these other places, the word had already spread. 
about what an incredible work that God was doing at Thessalonica. You know what that tells me? I think that's God's purpose in our life. I think God wants to do such a work in your life personally and through, through this body of Christ collectively that he wants a testimony to go out and go forth so that when we go other places, people say, well, I've heard about what's going on in Statesboro. I heard what God's doing at Connection. I heard how God's reaching the lost. I hear how God's setting the captives free. Amen? That's the testimony that this church had. So the church's patience. I want, you to, I want you to turn over to my favorite book in the Bible, James. My favorite book in the Bible, James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to share with you three types of patience that were evident in the life of the believers at Thessalonica. Let's read verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5. Here we go. James says this. He says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, patience. Three kinds of patience. Here's the first one. In verse 8, James talks about an active patience. You say, Coach, what do you mean by active patience? Well, here's what I mean. An active patience through Christ is this, waiting with action. Waiting with action. In other words, serving Christ while you wait on His return. See, I think too many believers want to get into a comfort zone. They come to Christ... They know that He has died for them. They receive Him as Savior. They basically get fire insurance because they don't want to become a crispy critter. Amen. And so they've asked Christ into their heart, and then they look for this comfort zone whereby they they draw up the moat, and they just sit and kind of wait. They just kind of exist. So many believers live like this. They just exist, waiting on Him to, to, to rapture them or until their heart stops beating and they go home to glory. Well, I just can't wait to get to glory. Amen, you know, with nothing to show for it. But that's not how we're to live. We're supposed to have an active patience. We wait on the Lord's return, but we serve Him in action while we wait. Every day, waiting on Him, yet serving Him in whatever capacity He's put in our heart. And then we see in verse 9, a peaceful patience. A peaceful patience is this. As you're waiting on God's return or as you're waiting on God to give you a word, as you're waiting on God's instructions, listen, refusing to argue, grumble, or complain when your patience is tested. That may be at home. That may be in the office. That may be in your personal relationships or that may be in church. In other words, folks, listen. That kind of patience, a peaceful patience, means that you refuse to have strife in your life. We're not going to have strife in our home. Strife is of the enemy, amen? 
And you have to teach it to your children, and you teach it as a family, and you say, we're not going to have strife. We're going to have peaceful patience with the other. Because you know what? We're going to not look like the world. We're going to try to look like Christ. We want to look like Jesus. We're not going to go to church on Sunday, but our house looked like a war zone in Iraq Monday through Saturday. Amen? And we're not going to have it in our personal relationships. We're going to have a peaceful patience. We're going to talk through things, and we're going to pray through things, and we're going to trust God to work things out by faith. And in the meantime, we're going to refuse to what? We're not going to argue, we're not going to grumble, and we're not going to complain. Amen? A peaceful patience. And that's only, power, only available through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have Jesus in you, you're not going to have much peace. I'm, I don't have much patience. I have to rely completely on God, trust me for patience, but it's something that you have to discipline yourself with. It's something you have to ask God to help you with, and it's something that you have to do as a family together. Refuse to have strife. The home especially, the home needs to be a place of refuge. There needs to be a place in the life of you and your spouse and your children where you know you can come to and you can escape all of the issues of the world. There needs to be a place of peace. They don't need to leave the chaos of the world and just uh, exchange it for the chaos of home. Amen? There needs to be that place of refuge where children come in and know that mother loves father, father loves mother, they love the children, and we're going to work through. We may have our differences, and there are going to be issues that we've got to deal through, but we're going to deal with them through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to refuse to argue and grumble and complain. When it starts, we're just going to stop it. If we've got to walk away from each other for five minutes and come back together, then so be it. But we're going to put in place a system whereby the Holy Spirit has reign, where God can develop a home that is of peace, where we don't have strife, and where we can have the love of God so that we can walk into the house and let out that sigh of relief, knowing that we are on holy ground, in a place of refuge. Amen? And so a, a peaceful patience was very evident among these believers. And then the last one is this, a painful patience. Even in suffering, their patience was made strong. Most Christians lose hope and or control when they're squeezed by life. Unfortunately, church, when when Christians get squeezed, we we, we often lose it. We lose our patience. We we often fall apart. And we lose an opportunity to give a testimony that Christ is real in our lives. What a testimony it is when others see it fleshed out that we persevere when others see us walk through the valleys knowing that he'll never leave us nor forsake us when others see us walk through the valley knowing that God is holding our hand when others see us go through the valley knowing that he is right there beside us or in front of us or carrying us at times and they see us hold on by faith to the hand of God what a testimony that is to others because they're looking for the same answers amen they want to know It's not the mountaintop where you get tested. It's in the valley most often, most often, because you can get tested on the mountaintop if you get your eyes on the the mountaintop experiences. Amen? So a painful patience. What a testimony that we can have. And then fourthly, in verse 4, we see the church's endurance. You see, it says there in verse 4, it says, There's a testimony of you among the churches for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. Now, this word endurance, the word endure, it comes from the Greek word hupomone. It means this. It means perseverance, constancy, continuance, steadfastness. I like this definition. Resisting weariness and defeat. 
And so the writer says that there's a testimony of how you have endured these tribulations. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to give you a great scripture that talks about the endurance of people of faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Can I say this about endurance? I believe that in the church today, we have a lot of sprinters. We need more long-distance runners. We got a lot of sprinters. Hey, they get saved, and they come out fast, and then they wilt like a flower or like a piece of grass, and they just fall to the wayside. There's no endurance. They're not grounded. They're not growing in the Word and in their walk with Christ. We need more, more long-distance folks. Amen? And look at, look at, look at there in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Let's look at what the Word says. It says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. If you don't hear anything else, hear verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In other words, God is talking about the endurance that we need, and he's saying there that if you don't have your confidence in him, if you don't place your trust and your confidence in him, he says if you draw back, that his, he takes no pleasure. His soul takes no pleasure in that person. What God is saying is, I don't care what you're going through. Place your confidence in Him. Don't put your eyes on your circumstances. Never be confident in your own ability. Don't be confident in someone else's ability. But place every single ounce of your confidence in Jesus Christ. Amen? Every bit of your confidence in Him. Because He says, if you draw back, and so often I believe, I wonder how many blessings, I wonder how many opportunities we've missed out on, how many opportunities I've missed out on. Because I got right there at that place where God was wanting me to trust Him, where God wanted me to put my confidence and my faith completely in Him, but I, I got my eyes off of Him, just like the disciple on the water, and instead of looking at the Father, I looked at the water and I sank. How many opportunities have I missed because of that? Because of that lack of faith or the fact that I didn't have my confidence in him, I looked elsewhere. And right there, not only did I possibly miss a blessing, folks, but how many opportunities did I miss to be a testimony or to reach somebody who was watching? I wonder how many times somebody was watching and I didn't even realize it. And maybe I blew it because I didn't have my confidence in him. Allow him to be your endurance. Now, if you would, flip back over to 1 Thessalonians 1.6. I want to make one more point, and then we'll be ready to close. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. It says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord. You see... Let me stop right there. You see, when somebody first comes to Christ, how much of the Word do they know? Probably none, except maybe the verse you shared with them. Maybe John 3.16 because they saw it on a, at a football game or something. But they don't know the Word. It's you and I who are going to be the example. Amen? And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's not telling you that he's perfect. And you and I aren't saying that we're perfect. But if you're mature in the Lord, then you need to be an example. That's true discipleship. 
Listen, things like Sunday school and, and, and seminars and things like that, those things have their place. Teaching, that has its place. But do you know how Jesus discipled someone? Listen to me now. Hear what I'm saying. You want to teach someone how to pray? It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not Jesus' way to send them off to a seminar on how to pray, even though there's nothing wrong with that. But you know how to do it? Why don't you invite them into your quiet time and let them hear you pray? Or studying the Word. Don't send them to a 12-week discipleship or Sunday school class on here's how to study the Bible. Why don't you invite them over and show them how you study the Bible? Come alongside of them. Because, you see, that's what Paul's saying there. He says, you became followers of what? Of us and of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, in other words, me, Silas, Timothy, we, 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 we discipled you. You followed us. We set the example, and then you followed that. And as you grew in the Word, and as you followed our example... You, I got stuff hanging all off of me. I'm sorry. As you followed the, uh, our example and followed the word, then you began to grow in Christ and you began to follow him and you developed that own personal quiet time and Bible study on your own and then you were trained up and now you were ready to what? To go and disciple someone else. Relationships. He said, you followed us and then you followed the Lord. And listen to this. Having received the word in what? In much affliction... Karma with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, some followers, there's some believers out there who follow this prosperity gospel. And you know what they say? They say this. They say, following Christ endows you to a life of luxury. Following Christ allows you this life of luxury. You know what my word teaches? The word teaches me that following Christ may come with much affliction. But know this, that whether you're on the mountaintop or the valley, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That even if I'm going through affliction, God is right there with me. Can I say something? You and I ought to follow Jesus, not for what we can get, but for what he's already given. Amen? If you're going after Jesus because you want a certain type of car or a big house or a boat or whatever, I'm sorry, folks, but that's not my Bible. That's not what it teaches. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and serve him for one simple fact. Because 2,000 years ago, he went to a cross and died and shed his blood for me and secured my faith and my hope eternally. In, in heaven. Amen? That's why I'm following Jesus. And I think that's why we need to follow him. And we need to get excited about what he's doing. I hope that uh, in this transition, my, I want you to be praying for me. Uh, as, as I go to, to Thompson, Georgia, I want you to hear me. My heart is that we go in there and we reach all these kids for Christ. Not just the football players. Football is a platform. You know, I figured this out about God. I don't know that God necessarily cares about football, but here's what I know he cares about. I know he cares about those kids. I know he cares about those coaches that are going to work beside me. And so I've got a responsibility to make sure those coaches and those players and all the kids I come in contact with at school, whether they play a sport or not, I've got to make sure that I'm walking the walk and that I'm taking advantage of every opportunity to share Jesus Christ. And I think that because it involves and revolves around football, then I think God cares about football because it is a platform to reach the lost. So I want to ask you, as, as the days ahead come and go, and as you go through your life, don't forget about me and, and Wendy and the, and the kids as, as we're up there. And, and just know this, that we love you and we're going to miss you, and know that we're going to minister the gospel. Uh, win, lose, or draw, whatever the case may be, our intent and our purpose is to go up there and win souls. Championship rings, I've got them. Trophies, I've got them. But those things don't last forever. Those things will, will, will fade away. The Bible says, do not store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves can come in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot come in and steal.
Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Amen? Hey, we need to be about reaching the lost. Make a difference. You're not promised tomorrow. As I said earlier, life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Let's, get, let's be Jesus freaks. Let's get 212, bowling hot for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's make a difference. Let Jesus transform us, and let him use us to transform this community, this state, and this world. Amen? If you would, I'm going to ask you to stand.